Lonely song, the song's for you. There is a tremendously powerful force against which we must struggle. It's in us. And if we wish to free ourselves from its grip, we have got to struggle against it. And it's not just a struggle once for all time. It is a struggle over and over and over again on a daily basis, moment to moment nearly for us. Throughout esoteric literature, it's called many different names. This doesn't have to be confusing, though, if we focus on the meaning rather than the names. Understanding cuts through the outer to the esoteric heart of the matter. The problem with us is, is we're so focused through the five senses on the world of the five senses that it's difficult for us to remember that there is something underneath it all, that there is something behind it all. Maybe this is why self-remembering is such a big deal in the fourth way, because if we don't remember ourselves, if we can't remember one of these ideas, if we can't remember anything about this, we're lost. We just continue in our stupor, we continue in our sleep, we continue being dragged around through the five senses by life, whatever attracts our attention. Almost like if you've ever seen fishermen, they have a whole box full of lures and little baits that they put on the end of a line and then they throw it in the water and some they have that they pull and they jiggle and others that flash and others that go up and down and others that make a kind of a sound and a motion in the water that fish are attracted to. And it's like all of life is lures to us because we're attracted to everything. It seems like everything knocks us off our center of gravity because we don't really have a center of gravity because our center of gravity is out there instead of in here where it needs to be. And so we're so easily tossed from one thing to another or pulled from one thing to another because we're unable to direct our attention. We're unable to even find our attention, let alone direct it. Gurdjieff told a story, and I won't get it right, so all of the people who are nitpickers about things like that, let me just tell you right now, this is not going to be right. So I'm going to tell my version of the story that Gurdjieff told about how this thing, this tremendously powerful force, came to be in us. And it's just a story, so even if you do worship Gurdjieff, even if you have you know, a big handlebar mustache and you've shaved your head and you've added Ovich to your last name, you know, if it's like if you're Smithovich or somebody, you know, if you've gone that far, and there are people who are, you know, I know you're laughing, but I've seen people who've done it, people who've gone that far. It's like anything else. Imitation is the highest form of praise. So I look at it like, well, that's a high form of praise. Okay. I try and overlook the fact that there's something in me thinks it's absurd and ridiculous. I try not to go with that because I don't think that's really a higher way to go. So I try to look at it like, well, you know, imitation is the highest form of praise and that's just a form of praise. So perhaps the man deserves it. I don't know what he'd think about it, but my guess is he would probably be humored by it and call the person an idiot. That's just my guess. Anyway, the way the story goes is that in the solar system, in the solar world, Everything has to develop at a certain rate. And if one thing outpaces another thing, then something has to be delayed. So if something's going too quickly, it must be slowed down. So his story goes that man was developing faster than Earth. You know that the moon must develop, the Earth must develop, and our whole solar system, each planet must develop, that they're living beings in this system. And of course, they are living beings, but we don't understand that because we can't acknowledge any living being greater than ourselves. 
For some reason, there's something in us, our pride and our vanity, to keep us from being able to acknowledge and live with the idea that there's something greater than us, or that we somehow can't be greater than whatever is greater than us, that we can somehow learn to be greater. So we always hold it in the back of our minds, well, yes, well, maybe they're greater, but I could be greater if I would just apply myself in this area. It's just that it's not important to me right now, that kind of thing. You know how we are with people? Well, that's how we are with everything, because that's how we are. So man was developing faster than the earth. So the powers that be that are in charge of all of this, making sure that everything goes according to plan, called in the chief engineer, and they told him what was happening. They said, we've got this problem. And we'd like to know if you have any suggestions on how we can solve this problem. Man is developing far too quickly, he's waking up too quickly, and he's outpacing the Earth and the Moon and the other planets. So the chief engineer said, well, let me think about it. And he went away and he thought about it, and he came up with what he considered to be a very good plan. So he came back to the powers that be, and he said, yes, I think I have the perfect solution. This will work brilliantly and it will do exactly what you want it to do. Well, he invented imagination, and then he gave it to man. And from that time forward, instead of awakening more and more, man fell more and more asleep. So this tremendously powerful force in us was put in us, according to Gurdjieff, by the chief engineer. Now remember, this is just a story, and there are people who will take it literally, but they won't be around long, because it won't fit. It won't work. And so you're going to have to reach deeper inside of yourself, reach to something with more meaning than just the outer story. You're going to have to understand that there is something in us, and how it got there doesn't matter. Really, the bottom line is, I don't care how it got there. If a mouse ate part of the moon and then dropped some crumbs, and they fell somewhere on the earth, and the imagination sprouted up from that, and a man came along and ate it, and then it was a virus and everybody got it. As far as I'm concerned, that's just as good a story. The bottom line is, imagination is in us, and it's a tremendously powerful force that keeps us asleep. What we need to understand is that we're falling more and more asleep instead of awakening more and more, as we should be doing. As with everything, what has a front has a back, a positive and a negative. Imagination is no different. It has a positive and a negative. It has a front and a back. Artists, architects, inventors, builders, all these people who are creative depend on creative imagination. This is not the imagination of which we speak. We're not talking about a tremendously powerful force in us that helps us to create bridges and buildings and planes and cars and beautiful works of art and music. We're not talking about that. People get so annoyed when they hear that imagination is negative. But for the most part, the imagination that we must struggle with is negative. For the most part, the imagination that runs man is negative. And I'll give you a couple of examples of it. I'll give you two examples of negative imagination with which we have to struggle. And you'll recognize them. You'll recognize them instantly. The problem is that we can talk about them and we can recognize them instantly, but that doesn't mean we struggle against them. We just say, oh yeah, there it is. It's just a horrible thing, tremendously powerful force in us that we have to struggle against. And I know what that force is now. And then we go back to sleep. Morris Nichols said, there are two forms of imagination that we have to struggle against. So those two forms of imagination, I'm going to tell you, we're familiar with imagination arising from fear. There is an imagination that arises from fear. 
Men know fear of not being able to provide for their families. Every mother will know fear about her child. For example, if you're a man and you lose your job, you're no longer able to provide for your family, that can be a terrifying thing to a guy. They start to do crazy things. You have the fear that you'll never get another job. You have the fear that you're going to run out of money. You have the fear that you're going to starve to death. You're going to lose your house. You're going to lose this. You're going to lose that. You're not going to have enough for this. You're not going to have enough for that. I'm not saying this is just the provenance of men. I'm picking it specifically as an example for this one kind of imagination arising from fear and in a way that a man might be able to relate to it. Of course, there are other ways to have imagination arising from fear. But this was one of the things I thought of for men. I look around and I see when a man loses his job, it really takes a toll on him. It really makes him question his identity, makes him question his purpose, makes him question his future, makes him question his past, makes him question all of his choices. The negative imagination spawned by fear runs riot with horrible scenarios, visions, pictures, stories, all of those things that fill the mind, that haunt us, really. It's very hard to resist, and it can be dispelled by reality. So what that means is that if the man gets a job, suddenly the fear is gone. He knows that he's got what he needs, and so the fear evaporates. You can't have the negative imagination based on fear if there's no fear. If you have the reality of the job and the reality of a paycheck, you're no longer afraid. Let's take the case of a woman, for example, who has a child, and the child goes to school one day, and there are reports children have been disappearing. But then her child doesn't come home that day from school. What happens to the mother? What happens in her imagination? You know that fear takes hold of her and that everything that she imagines is based in fear. My child has been taken by whoever's taking these children and my, and my, this is, and then it goes on and on. Then you start to think of all the horrible things that could happen and will I ever see my child again? Will they find my child before my child is dead? And will the police know where to look? Does anybody care? On and on. Is my child going to end up on a milk carton for the next 10 years? Like that. But the moment that that door opens and that child walks in the house, that imagination, that negative imagination suddenly stops. So you get the job, the negative imagination arising from fear suddenly stops. Your child walks in the door, the negative imagination arising from fear suddenly stops. There's no problem with it after that. There's one way to dispel it besides getting the job or having the child come home. And the only way to dispel negative imagination spawned by fear is through faith. The problem is, is we don't have any. Faith is not something that you find in modern society. Oh, we have faith in the government, maybe. We have faith in God, the one on the money. In God we trust, we have faith in that God. We have faith in our ability to do something. We have faith in ourselves. We have faith in someone else. But the kind of faith that dispels this negative imagination spawned in fear, we don't have. As a rule, I'm not saying no one has it. Some people have more than other people have. But as a rule, remember what Jesus said. Well, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And that's still a good question. It was a good question 2,000 years ago, and it's still a good question today. And the answer is not a very pleasant answer. We don't have faith as a rule. Let's talk about faith a little bit. The writer of Hebrews, and we don't really know who that is. A lot of people think it was Paul, but we don't know that. We don't know who wrote it. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, 
the conviction of things not seen. We don't have that for a reason. There's another writer, John, who wrote in his first letter, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. So we're dealing with two things here. We're dealing with faith and we're dealing with fear. Kind of a two-pronged attack on this. One is perfect love casts out fear. So the way to get rid of negative imagination based in fear is to get rid of the fear. There are two ways to get rid of the fear. One way appears to be perfect love, and the other way appears to be faith. Now, what if there are not two ways? What if those two things are really the same? What if faith really is perfect love? And what is perfect love if it's not perfect union, if it's not perfect oneness? If you love someone, the two shall become one. The desire of your heart will be for that which you love. That's our problem on this planet now. The desires of our hearts are for the things that we love. And the things that we love come to us through the five senses. The things that we love don't come to us through internal senses like they should because of imagination. Because imagination satisfies every center. Being full of self-love leaves no room for love of something higher. Self-love arises from the five senses. Where else could it possibly come from? You can't know yourself except through your five senses. You must see yourself to know you exist. You must feel yourself. You must taste yourself. You must touch yourself. You must hear yourself to know that you exist. So we start off knowing that we exist through our five senses. What is it that we think is us? We think we are the body. That's what we think we are. We think that the mind is the brain. We imagine that without a brain, we would have no mind. We imagine that when the brain stops, all intelligent thought stops. We imagine that when the heart stops, all life stops with it. We imagine that we are a body, and then when the body ceases to exist, we cease to exist. This has caused a tremendous amount of fear in people's lives. Our whole life is set up around this because we are attached to ourselves through the five senses and attached to the world through the five senses. And because of this, self-love arises from the five senses. And faith is what is not sensible to us. And what is sensible? That which can be perceived through the senses. And so faith is nonsense to us because we have something else that we rely on, and that's the five senses. When we find the child, we find the job, the five senses tell us there's no more reason to fear, and so the fear stops. But if we had faith, we could stop the fear instantly and thereby remove the fuel for negative imagination. Negative imagination arising from negative states is the other powerful force with which we must struggle in ourselves, and it is much more insidious. It's easy to suddenly stop. The child walks through the door, you get a phone call, you're hired, you start work tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock, yahoo, you celebrate because there's no more negative imagination. Now it's just positive imagination. Now you're going to imagine, oh, what we're going to do and oh, how great it's going to be. Still imagination, but it's positive imagination and it's not negative imagination, at least not on the surface. Negative imagination arising from negative states can't be stopped so suddenly as negative imagination arising from fear. Nobody's going to walk through the door and that's going to stop. Nobody's going to give you a job and that's going to stop. Because it's arising from a negative state, its fuel source is different from the fear. And its fuel source is really dangerous. It can't be stopped for that reason, at least not so suddenly. Imagination working in negative states is fueled by negative states. 
one thing defines negative emotion is that it's self-running. Think about negative emotions. They don't need any circumstances. There's nothing that needs to be set in place for negative states to arise. They can arise seemingly from nowhere inside of us. And they can't be stopped just because you want it to go away. Have you ever worried? Have you ever imagined horrible things happening to you with absolutely no basis in fact whatsoever? Yes, all the time. Because that's negative imagination arising from negative states. It's like a perpetual motion machine. We don't know what sets it in motion, and it doesn't need us to keep on winding it. It doesn't have to be wound up like a clock in order for it to keep on going. It doesn't have to have a battery. It just keeps on going like a perpetual motion machine. You never need to stoke it. You never need to wind it. You never need to push start it. It's always able to go. Negative emotions can go on your whole life, fueled by imagination. So now we have this symbiotic relationship between negative states and negative imagination, and they act together to keep this going. A negative state can keep going, and then it's fueled by imagination, and imagination is fueled by the negative states. So now you have this perpetual motion machine that just keeps on going. It keeps on running by itself. No amount of reality can stop them. If you're in a negative state, it doesn't matter what happens. If you're in a negative state, and what triggered it is your fear that the economy is going down, and the economy takes a turn for the better, that doesn't mean your negative state is going to take a turn for the better. By then, it could be somewhere else. By then, it may have dragged in a thousand other things. And even with a stimulated economy, your negative state will still tell you that that's just temporary. It's going to turn down again because it always has. Imagination satisfies every center. Unfortunately, what this means for us is they have no need of reality. If the centers are all satisfied by imagination, what need do they have of reality? And so reality is supplanted by imagination. And unfortunately, the imagination that we have is primarily negative. It is rare for people to use positive, directed imagination. Very rare. And the reason it's so rare is because we're asleep. And we don't know that there's any need to because imagination satisfies every center. We don't know that we're asleep. We think we're fully conscious. We think we're one. Of course, I'm me. This is one I. And this is what I want to do. And this is what I'm going to do. And we don't see that there are other eyes that compete for a small portion of what little will we think we have. We don't see that there are other eyes that take control. And in this moment, we want this. And in the next moment, we want that. And in the next moment, we forget both of those things and we want something else. Because of negative imagination, we're satisfied that we're one. We're satisfied that we're awake. We're satisfied that we're good, virtuous people. We're satisfied that all of the mistakes we made were just mistakes and it was really other people who made us do it. It wasn't really us. If circumstances have been different, if we've been born under the right star, if our fathers had had better jobs, if only, if only, if only, then it wouldn't be that way and we wouldn't have made any mistakes and we'd have turned out wonderful people and perfect in every way instead of just perfect in almost every way with a couple of minor flaws that are really the fault of other people or the world. The world just isn't that way. Everybody just doesn't get the kind of education they deserve and need. We all know that. And so on and on it goes. Stepping back, we see we must struggle with imaginary eye which we have mistaken for real I. Unfortunately, there's not a person who will hear this and not a person sitting in this room who will not think that the I that they're identified with 
is their real I. You can't help it. You must think that. You must think that in order to exist. In order to go on, you've got to think that this is the real you, that what you decided to do is what the real you has decided to do, that what you have decided you want is what the real you has decided. We have to think this. And yet, this is all imaginary. This I that we are is imaginary. This identity that we have is acquired. It's not real. It is a fiction. It is false. It was written by the world. It was written on a blank page, which is what you were, by the world. And it's continually being written again and again and again. Rewritten, overwritten, edited again and again and again. But the basics of the story is still the same. Imaginary eye puts us in the wrong center of gravity. And that throws our being out of balance. Your being cannot be balanced as long as your center of gravity is not where it needs to be. And our center of gravity is not where it needs to be. And the reason it's not where it needs to be is because it's connected to this imaginary eye which is connected to the world of the five senses. And because of that connection, it's like taking a wheel and putting the axle off-center in the wheel. When that wheel goes around, it's going to go around lumpy. It's not going to travel around evenly. It's going to travel around lumpy. And the reason it will is because the axle's off-center, and that's how we are. The reason our lives are the way they are is because our axle, our center of gravity, is off-center. It's not where it's supposed to be. And because it's not where it's supposed to be, Everything that we do is lopsided. Everything that we do is unbalanced. And I mean everything. We think we do things well. That's fine. And it's just like, remember the story that Gurdjieff told about the solar development, that some things are going developing faster than others, some things are s developing slower than others. Well, if you've got things that are developing slower than others, there's only one thing to be done. The best thing to do is slow down whatever's developing faster while you put whatever efforts you can put into, whatever force you can put into, bringing up the other things that are developing more slowly to have them develop faster. So what would we say? We would say, if a man is a man number one, his center of gravity is in his instinctive moving center, then what we would say is that he needs to bring up the intellectual and the emotional center, and he needs to tone down the moving center. In other words, retard one and increase the other two try to develop at a more even balanced rate, a more even balanced pace. This would be very difficult for man number one. Man number two, emotional, it will be very difficult for man number two to not rely on the thing that he is best at. It will be very difficult for man number three not to rely on the thing that he is best at. In other words, it's going to take effort, and quite a lot of effort, and not just effort, but you're going to have to know how to make the kind of effort that's going to be successful, and that will take knowledge. So you'll have to have the right knowledge first, and then you'll have to make right effort to apply that knowledge to your own specific case right now. When you think about that, it's easy to see how difficult it is to awaken, because that's a lot of work, and we're not used to that kind of work. We're used to just allowing our attention to be grabbed by the five senses, by something out there, and then to be dragged off in that. Oh, I wanted to do that, but a really good television program came on, and I forgot all about it. Well, I wanted to meditate, but then I remembered that I had to take the dog to the car wash to have him shampooed, and so I didn't meditate. Well, I wanted to read the Psalms, you know, I wanted to do that, but then I thought, oh, well, I read them yesterday, and I really don't need to do that again today. Like that, well, I'll get to it, well, I'll do it a little bit later. So our whole psychology becomes distorted, like looking into a funhouse mirror. You know, you go to a fun house, which is great, 
Go to a fun house. Look in one of those warped mirrors. You know, they have the ones that make you look really tall and skinny. They have the ones that make you look short and fat. They have the ones that make you look all wrinkly and kind of, you know, warped. So they have all these different mirrors that distort. And that's what it's like for us. Our whole psychology is like that. And it's like looking into these mirrors. We don't see what we are, but what the imagination shows us instead. And the imagination shows us that we are one, that we are awake, that we're fully conscious, that we're virtuous, that we're generous, that we're kind. And anything that isn't in that picture, we don't pay any attention to. We focus on those things because that's what the imagination is showing us. And because imagination satisfies every center, we're satisfied with that. We're willing to accept that. We're willing to take that as the way it is. In other words, we don't see what we are. This form of imagination is so strong because we can't believe it. We can't believe what we are. If someone shows you what you are, you don't believe them. If someone tells you what you are, you take it as an insult. It wounds your self-love. You don't believe it. We can't believe what we are. Instead, we believe our own eyes. We believe what the imagination through the five senses tell us. We believe what we see. We believe the pictures that we have of ourselves. We don't believe the pictures that other people have of us, unless they agree with the pictures we have of ourselves. So we're stuck. The reason this form of imagination is so strong is because we can't believe that we are what this work says we are. We can't believe we are what esoteric teachings tell us we are. We don't even want to look in that direction. We are sure that it's not true. We're certain of that. Imaginary I is made up of imagination about ourselves and many other things. But those many other things are all connected with ourself, all connected with supporting this imaginary I. Everything in our life is connected with supporting imaginary I. The person you marry, the person you're friends with, the people you work with, all these people support imaginary I, one way or another, either negatively or positively. If you work with someone who doesn't like you, that's proof that you're better than him or her. Imaginary eye never sleeps. It's always working on ways to keep us locked in this imagination. Our feeling of ourselves gets attached to it, and it becomes bound there, unable to free itself directly. The problem with imaginary eye is you cannot act on it directly. You cannot grab hold of it like you could a screwdriver or a hammer. You can't get hold of it like you can the steering wheel of your car. You can't turn it by turning the steering wheel of your car. You can't adjust it like you can adjust the rearview mirror on your car so that you can see something else. Imaginary eye has to be dealt with in another way, and we don't know how to deal with it. And even if we did, we're pretty sure it doesn't even exist. We're pretty sure that imaginary eye is just somebody's imagination about us because we can't believe anything except what it tells us. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 29, it says, Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he plunder his house. Imaginary eye is a tremendously strong force, and it covers imagination. It covers the negative imagination that arises from fear, the negative imagination that arises from negative states. Imaginary eye covers all of that. Our struggle begins by becoming gradually aware of the existence of imaginary eye. How difficult has it been these past years to come to grips with the fact that you may not be who you have thought you are. All these years, who you've taken yourself to be, you may not be exactly that. Now, you know you're that, 
but maybe you're not exactly that. What self-observation has finally shown you and convinced you of is that maybe you're not always right. It's convinced you that maybe you're not always as loving and kind and generous as you take yourself to be. It's convinced you that maybe you don't always have control over yourself. And one other thing that is kind of the linchpin for us that starts to undo us is that maybe it wasn't the other person. Maybe it was me. That really starts to undo things, doesn't it? When you start to think, maybe this person I've been blaming all this time, maybe it wasn't them. Maybe it was me. Well, whew, I'm glad that possibility is impossible. You know, that's not it. And how many times have we gone back? How many times have we seen that we're not always right, and yet the next time we're right, right out of the gate? So this is how our struggle begins, is becoming aware of this imaginary I. It's agonizingly difficult because we think we are this strong man that needs to be bound. We think we are the imaginary I. Of course, directed self-observation is necessary, but so much more is involved than just directed self-observation. What good is directed self-observation if you don't know what to do with what you've observed? You must know what to do with it. It's not going to do itself. Imaginary eye is another thing that it is a self-healing. It doesn't matter how many times you wound it, it will heal itself. We have to learn to use our imagination for a directed purpose. The amazing thing about this is that the very thing that is destroying us is the thing that if we find the positive aspect of it, if we find the front of it instead of the back of it, if we find the front of it, or if we find the back of it, however you choose to look at it, I don't care. If you want to look at imaginary eye as the front of imagination, if you want to look at negative states as the front of it, that's fine. And you want to look at what's behind it as the back of it, that's okay with me. Either way, I don't care how you do it. For me, I see it as the yin-yang symbol. It doesn't matter which one you pick. They are exactly opposite. And they are not opposite at all because they make up one whole. And so negative imagination is part of imagination and positive imagination is part of imagination. And if you can use your imagination positively, directed imagination, then you're using imagination properly. What do you suppose will happen with negative imagination? It becomes part of positive imagination because it's the purpose to which you put it. It's the use to which you put it that determines what it is. It's not what it is inherently. It's the use to which you put it. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, it's written in esoteric writings, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible to you. Matthew 17:20. By directing our attention to the little that we have, it may be strengthened through use, like a muscle group. If someone has a stroke, what they do afterwards to get them back moving, to get their muscles moving again, to get them reconnected properly, is they have exercises, specific exercises that are to strengthen muscle groups, to keep things from atrophying, to keep things moving, to remake the connections, to rebuild new neuronic pathways in the brain so that you can regain what you lost. A stroke is like knocking down a part of a city. All the infrastructure has to be rebuilt. If you do the work, if you make the effort, the infrastructure can be rebuilt. And the reason is because the brain is incredible. We use so little of it that what's left over could make things that we think are impossible to us, possible to us. And this is one of the things that is possible to us, to rebuild these neuronic pathways, to make new ones to rebuild the infrastructure, to get things flowing again, moving again. 
people can come back from that and do all the time these days if they have the proper therapy, proper direction, if they know what to do. In other words, if they have the right knowledge and they apply that right knowledge, it's exactly what we're saying about this work. It's a perfect example, really. I don't know where that came from. It just kind of popped into my head. So by directing our attention to the little that we do have, it's going to be strengthened through use, just like a muscle group. Now, based on these ideas, you'll find that direct imagination is a gift, a great gift, if it's properly used when you are negative. Look, when you're negative is the time to use directed imagination. That's the time to use it, because negative emotion is self-propelled. We've got to struggle against it. You can't just wait for it to stop. Then I'll direct my imagination. After this negative state is gone, after the storm is over, then I'll direct. It's self-propelled. It's self-perpetuating. It continues all by itself. It's not going to just stop. You must bring better ideas, stronger ideas, more powerful ideas, coming from above, coming from outside of this five-sense world system. You've got to bring those ideas to the negative state. You can't wait for the negative state to calm down, to lose its power. You have to bring the ideas to it. We must escape the negative state. So the strong man, imaginary I, can be bound. He can't be bound as long as he's being fed. And negative states are feeding imaginary I. So we've got to stop the negative states. This is why one of the things they tell you right up front in the work is try to stop expressing negative emotions. What you find is that you can't do it. We were talking about this last night. Was it Pat was talking about? She and Rex were headed to the car to go somewhere, and he was being Rex. And that's all that needs to be said. He was being Rex. And it was the Rex that vexes some I and Patty. And so Patty instantly went off on him. And she said, not only was there no way to stop it, I never even thought to stop it. Because I thought I was right. I didn't think I was being negative. I thought I was just telling things the way they are. This is exactly what imaginary eye does. Exactly. We imagine that we're right. We imagine that the way we see it is the only possible way to see it. It could not possibly be seen in another way because this is the way it is. And you can't stop expressing negative emotions if they are not negative emotions. You've got to first know that you're being negative. You've got to be able to see that. And you cannot see that unless you hear what it means to be in a negative state. And you have to believe it. You have to accept it. You have to take hold of it, which means you must somehow verify it through self-observation in yourself before you can possibly admit that you're negative. We've been in this work for a lot of years. I ask you one question. I don't want you to answer it out loud, but I want you to answer it in your own mind, in your own heart. Today, how difficult is it for you to admit that you're wrong? It's hard, isn't it? I mean, it's still hard. As many times as we've seen we were wrong, it's still hard to admit you were wrong. Even when you know you're wrong, it's hard to come out and admit it and say it. And as soon as you do, someone else gloats. It wounds your self-love and you want to take it back. Isn't that true? And you make a vow to yourself, even though you may not make an official vow, you vow to yourself, I won't let that happen again. <laughs> this is how we are, and this is what all of this is all wrapped up in imaginary eye. All of this is all part of imaginary eye. It's all part of the false personality. All these different parts are chief features. And then there are other minor features about it. And they all support one another. It's a supporting cast. 
And it's amazing just to keep this thing in place. And this is why we say it's a strong man. And this is why we say it's got to be bound. You're not going to overcome this directly. You must bind it first. Influence from greater mind, conscious ideas, lift us out of the lower negative states. There is something absolutely positively miraculous about these ideas that come from the conscious circle of humanity, that come from above us, that come from beings who have awakened, beings who are conscious. We are beings who are not conscious. We are beings who are asleep. This is the first and most difficult thing to find out about yourself, that if you can hear my voice, you are asleep. If you can't hear my voice, you are asleep. If you want to hear my voice, you're asleep. If you don't want to hear my voice, you're asleep. If you're on this planet, you're asleep. You may not be asleep at this nanosecond, but in the next two or three, you will be. Maybe your sleep is not as deep as it was five minutes ago, but it's still sleep because we still do not know the truth. We still do not know real eye. We still take imaginary eye for real eye. That means we're asleep. So here's how it works. The only way to escape the negative state so that imaginary eye can be bound is to get hold of some of these greater ideas that come from greater mind, the conscious circle of humanity, whichever you choose to call it. It doesn't matter to me. Because those ideas have the influence, the power to lift us out of the negative states. If we will hold on to them, and if we will pull on them, they will lift us out. They will pull back, and they will lift us out of negative states, no matter how miry, no matter how stuck our feet may be in them. They still, if we will hold on, they still have the power to pull us out. That's the first step. Once we have separated the negative imagination from its fuel source, negative emotions, it can be bound. But you've got to remove it from its fuel source first. You've got to cut off the fuel source. You've got to stop putting gasoline on the fire. You can't put the fire out until you first stop adding fuel to it. The best way to put a fire out is to remove all the oxygen so that it can't burn. But that's very difficult. So we work on as many different areas as we can. Even if we remove all the oxygen, if the oxygen is brought back into the picture and everything's still hot enough, it'll spontaneously combust again. So we've got to stay on top of this. If it's left unchecked, this form of imagination can lead people to insanity. I'm not going to ask you to look around and see other people who negative imagination has led to insanity. I'll just ask you to look at yourself and how negative imagination has led you to insanity. How many times have you gone absolutely bonkers over nothing, just crazy, lost complete control of yourself, lost control of your thoughts, lost control of your feelings, lost control of your emotions, lost control of your actions because of negative states, negative emotions. We justify it later, but the truth is, is we were not in control. All negative emotions lead down to violence, which is the most severe form of insanity that there is. Violence is the most severe form of insanity. And all negative emotions, all of them, if allowed to go unchecked, will eventually lead down to violence. Directed imagination is very different from imagination that directs you. Imagination that directs you is the imagination that makes that story go through your head over and over again. The imagination that directs you is the imagination that when you imagine that that person is saying this about you or talking about you or thinking about you or hates you or doesn't like you or has some kind of enmity against you, that's negative imagination and that directs you. That runs you around. You don't have the opportunity to do anything with it. It's running you. The former is a liberator while the latter is a dictator. 
Directed imagination liberates you. Negative imagination is a dictator. It makes you do what it wants you to do. Negative imagination makes us its slave, causing us to do cruel things with impunity. Directed imagination takes effort. We must will what we are being taught by the conscious circle through the ideas with which they have seeded humanity. These ideas that come from esoteric teachings, from esoteric schools, come from conscious beings. And these ideas have been seeded into our world so that we can begin to awaken, so that we can begin to get hold of these ideas and use them to wake up, to shake off the stupor of imagination that keeps us running around in circles all the time. We must observe and note when the imagination has its roots in negative states and try to separate from it. Look at when your imagination is rooted in negative states. Try to separate from the negative emotions. That will start to starve negative imagination. Real I does not wish to do the things that negative imagination makes us do. If you don't remember the ideas, they can't work in you. They can only help you if you remember them. So we come full circle. Remember yourself. Remember these ideas. Remember to remember. Remember that you are not one. You are not fully conscious. You are not who you think you are. This thing that you take yourself to be is a fiction. It is not you. That is not I. You might have been